Ruth 2, 1 through 23, and as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me as we do. And just a reminder for those of you who are not with us last week, this, uh, this is not a tragedy, as it appears at the outset, nor is the book of Ruth a romance, which might have been your guess, though there's romance in it. But it is a redemptive story, first and foremost. It is a story of God's redeeming grace to his people. And we're picking up here in the second chapter this morning. Let me go to the Lord and pray just briefly for us before we come to the preaching of his word. Father, we do commit ourselves to you. We come as people who have nothing. We come with those who hold out empty hands. And we pray that you would fill us with the bounty of your grace, that you would fill our mouths with good things, that you would satisfy our hearts with the pure milk and meat and wine of your word. We pray, our God, that you would give us a hunger and a thirsting after righteousness so that we might be filled, that you would give us a hunger for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we pray that you would hold your son forth and Lord Jesus, you would manifest yourself in the most powerful of ways this morning as your word is preached. We do pray for your help both in preaching and in receiving and keeping and believing and putting into practice your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And here in Ruth chapter 2, the writer, we don't know whether that was a man or a woman, now says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Eli Melech. Last week I said Elimelech, and somebody tried to get me to say Eli Melech, so I'll say Eli Melech from here on out. Um, which means my God is king, and he's dead in this chapter. God was not his king. He took his family down to Moab during the famine. And yet here we're told that Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Eli Melech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your, and in Hebrew, literally, it's maidservants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside, beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she, went, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took note of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi said also to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our kinsmen, redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said unto me, You shall keep close to my young men until you have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with the young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I don't know if you have ever been in a situation where you have been in such desperation you have had to go to someone who had uh, financial security in order to ask for help. I imagine most of us at some point, in some way, have found ourselves in that situation. And I don't know if you have ever been in that situation, if you have ever had to ask for help only to have someone begrudgingly give to you. It's actually one of the very painful experiences in this world that someone may be willing to begrudgingly help someone in a real and true time of need. Um, it shows the greed that, it, that so grips the hearts of men and women in this fallen world, that, that when someone with real need, someone who is truly in need, has the humility to go for help, they are essentially belittled or demeaned or helped begrudgingly or perhaps not at all. And one of the things is we've looked at this story and we've seen Naomi and Ruth now widows, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. And we've seen Naomi's uh, telling her daughters to go back. She didn't have a son to raise up for her now widowed daughter-in-laws. And she's gone down into Moab. Remember, she said fool and she said, I came back empty. And yet she's come back with Ruth. Ruth has been a trophy of God's grace. Ruth has been converted to the living God. Ruth has said to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. I will follow you wherever you go because I am binding myself to the God of covenant promise, the God of redemption, the God you have told me about. I am responding in faith. She is an unlikely convert. 
And yet they have come back. They have heard that God had visited the land of Israel, that there was now bread in Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there had been famine. And God now has providentially brought back Naomi, and he has brought Ruth with her. And yet they're at a place where they still have nothing, and they still face great dangers. They don't have family to turn to. They don't have jobs to go fill. This is not that sort of society. And they are truly widows, truly without any assistance and without any help and without any support. And they face great dangers and they face great uncertainty. Now, one of the things we said last week that you want to remember is as you come to the book of Ruth, you want to read the book of Ruth as if you didn't know the ending. We all know the ending. Unless you're a new believer, you've presumably cherished this book, especially in the scriptures. But if you didn't know the ending and you were reading through this book for the first time and you're reading this story, your response would be, what is going to happen? What's going to happen to Naomi? What's going to happen to Ruth? Is, is someone going to provide for them? Is there going to be a new husband for Ruth? Who is going to take care of Naomi? And there's uncertainty looming large over the story. And yet there is a divine foreshadowing of all that God has already prepared, casting its shadow over that uncertainty. It's one of the marvelous books in scripture. It's so masterful. There's a level of uncertainty, and then there's a level of providential mystery in which God is overshadowing his, his eternal purposes and that he's working all these things out to bring his purposes of grace to bear in the lives, we said last week, of two ordinary women, one a Jew, one a Gentile, one a Jewish widow, one a Moabitess, widow, two women, and yet God's shadow of grace is being cast over this. And as the narrative continues, we're going to see here in chapter two that essentially what happens is there's a quest for provision, and there is the revelation of a redeemer. There is in the first part this marvelous quest for provision. Naomi and Ruth have no doubt talked at length about what they're going to do, where they're going to get food, how they're going to be able to find the help that they need and the provisions that they need. And, And to understand this, We have to understand that in the ancient Near East, in an agrarian society, in a non-welfared society, there was not a lot of hope for these women. And yet God had embedded in his law this really wonderful principle in Leviticus 19 that if you owned a field that strangers should be able to pass through that field after it had been harvested and anything that had fallen on the ground, you could come in behind and you could pick up that remaining grain and there would be essentially a work for mercy principle at work in which God's bounty and his goodness was there for those who needed, they could walk through these fields and they could glean and they could gather. And notice that comes to the forefront here in chapter two. We're told at the outset, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Eli Melech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, One of the fascinating things and one of the things that sort of weaves its way through this chapter is that Ruth never leads with an entitlement mentality or presumption. Ruth doesn't just say, I'm going out there and I'm doing what I want 
I'm doing what has to be done. I'm going to find out how to get provision. I'm going to put myself out there, and I'm going to presume that others should help me. That is actually completely absent from Ruth chapter 2. In fact, it's very interesting, Ruth is at every point acknowledging how undeserving she is, and at every point is leading with humility and meekness and gentleness, and she's asking everybody for permission to even go out and do what needs to be done in order to help her mother-in-law. Now, this is why Ruth is one of those cherished figures in Scripture. Um, Well, Ruth is a Moabitess, and very interesting, isn't it? Whenever the writer talks about her in this chapter, it's not Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, it's Ruth, the Moabitess. It's highlighting her, her pagan roots. It's hi- highlighting that she doesn't deserve a share with the covenant people. It's highlighting that, that she doesn't have a claim or a right by nature. It's, it's highlighting that she's undeserving. This, this chapter is dripping with, with the fact that by nature we, who are Gentiles no less Jews, are undeserving of mercy, are undeserving of kindness. Now, that's a huge principle. Um, none of us has a right to mercy. Otherwise, it wouldn't be mercy. None of us has a right to divine kindness. Otherwise, it wouldn't be kindness. Um, that's the principle. Grace and mercy are undeserved. Otherwise, it's you who's working, and that's works, and that's not grace. And here, Ruth is everywhere being shown to be a woman that understands that she doesn't deserve anything. And so she asks Naomi, let me go to the field. I've seen this field. I've seen that this man, Boaz, who seems, and I I think Ruth sees something in Boaz. You know, we're not told here at the outset that she'd seen him, but clearly she'd been eyeing this, this particular field. And there's something about it that to which she's drawn, that she feels like, here's a place where I can get provision. Here's a place of potential help. Here's somewhere that I could go. And, and we don't know why Naomi doesn't go with her. It could be that Naomi has some sort of illness. Um, it could be that Naomi, and we're kind of tempted to just assume she's just despondent because of depression. She said, you know, call me bitter. I went down full. I came home empty. Remember last week? She's depressed. She's downcast. She's discouraged. She's hopeless. So Ruth volunteers. Ruth says, let me go. Let me go to the field. Let me ask if I can glean. Can I go? And she goes, and, and there's an intimation, and you really catch this in the Hebrew. There's an intimation that what Ruth does is she goes and she stands by the field. She doesn't actually enter into the field. She goes and positions herself now a step closer to where she could get provision. She's not presumptuous at any level, in any way whatsoever. She is, she is eager and she is diligent in pursuing the provision and the mercy that she needs, but she goes and she stands and she waits by the field and she waits near Boaz's reapers and they see her. And we know that they see her because we see that interaction. When Boaz asks, whose woman is this? The the head reaper knows. They know that she's been standing there. They know who she is. And notice as Ruth continues seeking this provision that She has that interaction with Boaz, and we'll talk about Boaz in a moment, but notice that she asks in verse 7, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Now, here's the interesting thing. We don't know whether Ruth knew Leviticus 19 and the law that God had provided that to show his large, gracious, merciful, kind heart to his people. 
or not. We don't know. There's a chance she did. And if she did, that heightens her response. She, again, doesn't presume. Now, she's very humble. Um, You know, when Peter, in 1 Peter 3, speaks about godly women of the Old Testament and and the model that they are, I, I wonder whether he has Ruth in mind because she... To, to the most superlative degree, exhibits this picture of a gentle, he says a gentle and, and a meek heart, that, that the outward beauty is not in the adorning, but it's the inner beauty of a gentle and meek spirit, which is very precious to the Lord. This is, this is what's being highlighted here. I think Ruth's inner beauty is showing. Very interesting that Boaz will never speak of her outer beauty, when we come to consider him, he, he sees something about her. There's something in her character. Um, I think that's an example. I think it's an example to godly women. I think it's an example to men about what sort of wife they're to look for, that this is very clearly being set out. Ruth, she's so, she's so meek. In verse 7, she says, please let me glean and gather some among the sheaves after the reapers. And she begins to. And then Boaz comes to her. Notice that, that she says to Boaz, she falls on her face to the ground. Notice verse 10. She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, why have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Again, She's acknowledging, I have this enormous need. It's driving me on. I've got to provide for my mother-in-law. I need provisions. You have provisions. I don't deserve them. That's, that is looming large over this chapter at every point. And then you might think it's, it's done here, right? I mean, she asks Naomi in verse 2, if she go in the field, she then, um, she then, asks one of the reapers in verse 7 if she can glean. Then in verse 10, when Boaz meets her, she bows down to the ground and she begs permission again, acknowledging that she doesn't deserve what she so desperately needs. And then, notice this, this is absolutely remarkable. Then notice, again, after Boaz has said to her, may the Lord bless you, take the sheaves, have as much as you want. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to provide for you everything that's going to superabound anything that you thought you needed. I'm going to I'm going to superabound that as the redeemer. After Boaz says, "The Lord repay you for what you've done," in verse 13, she says, "I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. You have comforted me and have spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your maidservants." You see that? There she is acknowledging again that she is the undeserved recipient of mercy. Now, there are two things at work in this chapter that are really wonderful. The one thing is what God is doing. And the Lord, even in his law, even in the law of gleaning, even even embedding into his law this principle of generosity and kindness, covenant mercy, hesed, this, this covenant love, this, this long-standing love that God embeds into his law to show his people what kind of God he is, to show them how generous he is. He, that is coming to the forefront. God is the generous God. God is the covenant-keeping God. God is the merciful God. God is the merciful God to the undeserving. God is merciful to those who have no claim on his mercy. 
And God is so great in his mercy that even when Naomi and Ruth don't know what to do or where to do it or even how to do what needs to be done, God has already taken care of it. He already embedded that in his law in one sense. You could say Leviticus 19 was breathed out by God so that we would have the story of Ruth. Isn't that wonderful? God has already embedded his gracious, merciful purposes in his word to show that he is going to work his purposes out in the lives of his people who don't deserve that. And then the other thing we see is the response to God's grace and mercy, and it brings about great humility and meekness. You know, self-righteousness, we talked about this already this morning, manifests itself when... Um, usually we think we've done good at something. So whatever we think we're good at, then we judge everybody else with a heavy hand based on that. That's self-righteousness. Whatever I think I've attained, I'm good at this. They should be good at this. Why aren't they good at this? And I'm going to treat them accordingly. That's self-righteousness. Ruth is emptied of of any self-righteousness, sense of entitlement. She is a model for us of a needy, helpless, wanting sinner. She is the picture of what we are by nature. She is the very living, breathing picture in her experience here, in her circumstances of what we are. We are absolutely helpless. The way the Bible speaks about us by nature is that we were hopeless and helpless. When we were without hope, when we were without help, when we were aliens to God's covenant promises, when we were in the far country, when we were far away from God's promises, when we had no stake on his mercy, when we had no claim on his grace, when we had no right to redemption in and of ourselves, and yet all we had was need and want, the way we should respond is with unbelievable humility, and we should respond the way Ruth responds in approaching Boaz. Now, Um, there's a sense where Ruth's deepest needs are still unmet at this point. Um, She'll go back. She'll go back to Naomi. So she eats. She feasts. Boaz doesn't just let her glean. He has her come in and eat bread and drink wine. He, he, He has her, he has, he has her then protected so that she can go out and she can she can take from the stalks something God had not said. His generosity is just overflowing. His bounty and his goodness and the joy with which he's ready to help one who has so much need is just overflowing, the least. And, and, and as, as uh, the narrative progresses, it says that that wasn't it. She could go through and she could get everything she could get. And she gets an ephah, and that would be somewhere between 30 to 50 pounds of... of um, of grain. Now, I, I'm guessing, I imagine she put it on her head because that's what you do when you're, you can't carry 30 to 50 pounds very far. And she carried that back to her mother-in-law and, and they rejoiced together because God had provided. There was provision for them. After a time of incredible famine, there was a time of incredible bounty. It, it reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus' overflow and the provision of the fish and the loaves and the disciples, right? They, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? And Jesus said, well, there's a social society down the street. If you go down there, they have a, a pantry in place, 
And if you all get enough people involved on a committee, we can make that happen. No, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they say, how are we going to give them something to eat? We have a couple loaves and a couple fish. And then Jesus miraculously multiplies the loaves and the fish and the disciples give it out. And, And the gospel writers make a point of saying after they had, they took up what was left over and they had 12 baskets full. What's the point of that? 12 disciples, 12 baskets. There's an abundant provision in God's mercy for his people. And Ruth has this abundant provision, and yet she doesn't have all that she really needs. The rest of this story, obviously, is showing us how God is going to meet Ruth's deepest needs. Remember, Naomi gives us a clue into that in chapter 1. There was, a, there was another law in Deuteronomy 25 where... Um, if a woman was widowed and um, he had a brother, his brother could raise up children to her. And, and that was massively important. You may not understand that. In a society with insurance and all the luxuries that we have of, of finding uh, provision and longevity and security, they didn't have that. And, and so God in his law made this provision because really the two big things that, that mattered to you if you were an Israelite was the carrying on of your namesake and the protection of the inheritance of the land. Those were the two big things. And how will our name continue in Israel? How will the possession of the land that God has given us stay in this family line? And God had said that one of the things that, that he would provide was a brother or a close relative could raise up to a brother. If the brother had died, he, he would be raised up as a new husband and he would bear children and that inheritance would be kept in the family and God was showing how redemption would work and he was giving us this beautiful picture of redemption and Naomi is feeling the burden of that she's downcast because now everything that an Israelite hoped in is is gone and all of that was all prefiguring the eternal inheritance and the spiritual hope in God and to be blessed by God and to have all of his eternal blessings. And that was a little picture of that. And that was what mattered most if you loved and feared the Lord. That's what you cared about the most was that God was for you because you belonged to him and that God was doing as he had promised. And Naomi has that and there's still no redeemer. And yet when we come here into chapter two, the way that the chapter sets up is very interesting. He doesn't say, or she, whoever wrote this, doesn't say, um, does not say, um, now Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go out to the field and glean. That would seem to be the natural flow of the text. But notice that what the chapter begins with is, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Eli Melech, whose name was Boaz. Here, God is already preparing to introduce Ruth and Naomi to the Redeemer. Boaz is a kinsman redeemer. Naomi will actually say that. The, the turning point, by the way, in this whole chapter, everything turns on Naomi saying in, in, in verse Uh, 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And why is that the turning point? Because here has been depressed, discouraged, downcast, lonely Naomi, who said, call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. 
And, and here is the turning point. Now she realizes that God has heard and answered her prayer. What was her prayer? Back in chapter one, remember when she told her daughters to go back to their people. Notice she sends them back and she says, she says to them there in verse, in verse eight, but Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each of you to your mother's house and may the Lord deal kindly with you. That was her heart's desire for her daughter-in-laws. May the Lord deal kindly with you. She wanted God's kindness to rest. I, you know, just as an aside, if you don't want God's kindness and blessing on everyone around you, there's something seriously wrong in your heart. Seriously. The desire of a godly person is that God would manifest his kindness and his blessing to everyone the way he has to us. That was his desire for Naomi. That was Naomi's desire for her daughter-in-laws. And now Naomi's seeing a fulfillment of that in Boaz. Now, Let's look at Boaz briefly. Boaz is remarkable. He's wealthy, and yet he's not your typical wealthy, massively wealthy business owner. Um, he's not a shark. He wouldn't be on, on uh, he wouldn't be on the, 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 I forget the name of it, the shark show. He wouldn't be one of those people. That's not Boaz. Boaz, by way of contrast, is very unlike the man in Jesus' parables who built bigger barns when his grain increased. Remember, the grain increased, the barns grew, and then God said, full, your soul is required of you this day. Boaz is the contrast. The grain increases, it abounds. Boaz finds the least likely and most unworthy person. He finds the least to bless them, and he blesses her with all kinds of incredible incredible bounty. And it's not if you're wondering and scheming because he's trying to hit on Ruth. That's not the end game. He's not playing a game. It's not part of his game. <laughs> he, is, he is finding someone in need, and he is helping, and he is showing large compassion and grace. And that's a mark of someone who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ. Someone who has received the mercy of redemption is someone who shows that mercy to others. Someone who has been the recipient of God's mercy and knows that they're undeserving in turn shows that to others. In many respects, Boaz is doing what Jesus says believers do in the parable of the sheep and the goats when he is showing kindness to the least of these, the least. Now, Boaz is even more remarkable than that because it's conceivable. Someone could say, well, maybe he just liked Ruth and he's older and she's younger and he's single and he's lonely. There is a kind of a contrast, by the way, between Genesis 2 and Ruth here that we'll talk about more next week uh, in the romance part of this story. But um, Boaz is seen as being this, this incredibly revered godly man. When he goes out to the field, notice this, when he goes out to the field and to the reapers, he says to them, he says to the reapers, um, the Lord be with you. And the reapers say back to Boaz, the Lord bless you. Now, don't miss that. That's not a, this is business ethics. That's not an insignificant little detail. Boaz is showing what it means to be a godly man who has godly people under him and how a godly man treats those that work for him and how they revere him for his godliness and his graciousness and his kindness 
And, and, and even more than that, the first thing that Boaz says, he takes the Lord's name up on his lips. He takes Yahweh's name on his lips. This is a man who speaks about God. This is a man who knows that what he has, he has from Yahweh, the covenant Lord. This is a man that doesn't presume he just did well for himself. He worked real hard and he did good for himself. This is a man who understands that anything he has, especially after a famine when they didn't even have grain for over 10 years, a severe famine that drove Naomi's family down into Moab, this is a man that understands everything he has, he has from the Lord, and everything he has he is to use to bless others, even in his business. This is a remarkable figure. Um, just as Ruth serves as an example to women of a, a model of godliness and inner beauty and gentleness and humility and meekness, Boaz serves as an example to men of what it means to be a strong, wise, gracious, kind, humble, God-fearing, God-speaking, God-honoring, God-acknowledging man in this world. That's... That's the picture. They're both being set out. Now, I would be remiss if I left it there and said, now go be like Ruth. Go be like Boaz. Because I'm guessing, if we were honest with ourselves, we would say, I'm not like Ruth, and I'm not like Boaz so often. And, and, and there's a day coming when what we are will be shown. It will be laid bare. It will be a terrible day. Judgment day will be very terrible because there's no more deception, no more covering, no more hiding, no more pretending, no more putting the mask on, no more trying to play the part. But here's the good news. There is a redeemer. There's a redeemer in the fields where Ruth has put herself. There is redemption in God's house. God is providing a redeemer. And Boaz, as you know, I hope, is one of the greatest types of Jesus in the Bible. Let me, let me walk you through this. Um, old theologians will not hesitate to say that Ruth is a type of the church and Boaz is a type of Christ. And, and when you start to really see that and you start to see here is Ruth going in, in complete uh, abandonment and, and helplessness and acknowledging her need and acknowledging just like everybody in the Gospels who comes to Jesus. No one comes to Jesus that doesn't say, I am helpless and hopeless. Let me say that as loud and clear as I can this morning. If you are one who says you've come to Jesus, then you are one who has said, I have said, I am helpless and I am hopeless. I am poor, I am needy, and I am perishing unless God has mercy. That's the only person that comes to Jesus. And everybody that comes to Jesus in the Gospels gets that. Everybody that finds the Redeemer, everyone that positions themselves in front of him. Think of blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowds tell him, tell him to be quiet. And he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stands still and he commands him to come and he flees to Jesus. He puts himself in the place where he can be heard and seen for his cries for mercy. And Ruth has done that. And here is Boaz. And Boaz comes out of Bethlehem. And Jesus comes out of Bethlehem. Jesus is the redeemer that comes out of the house of bread. And the Bible is everywhere likening the church to God's fields, his harvest, and, and his people gleaning in his fields and him providing. And what did Ruth need more than provision? She needed protection. 
What does Boaz give her? He gives her provision and protection. He says, I will give you more than you can ever imagine, and I will protect you from everything that will harm you. He commanded his men to make sure she was safe. He told her to stay close to his young women. He, he protected her safety, satisfaction, provision, protection in the Redeemer. And there is nothing but truth on Jesus' lips. He comes out of Bethlehem and he says to his people, the Lord be with you. And his people cry back, the Lord bless you. He's the Redeemer. He deserves the praise of his people. He deserves the admiration of his people. Ruth even bows down to him in this chapter. There's a bowing down and a worshiping aspect, not of Boaz, but of the Redeemer who would come from Ruth and Boaz's marriage because Jesus comes from them. That's where all of this is moving. All of this is set in that picture and set against that background. Now, I want to ask you this morning, and, and I have one job to do. I have one job. My job's not social activism, politics, um, even growing an organized religious institution. That's not my job. As a minister of the gospel, my job is to make sure you have seen that you have forfeited a right to God's eternal inheritance. By your sin, you are helpless and you are hopeless, that you will perish unless God has mercy, that you see that God is generous, that God is such a merciful God, that God is full of bounty, that there is a redeemer, and that that redeemer says, come to me, and I will provide for you. That's my job. And your job, and you have one job, you have one job. It's not whatever you do through the week. The one job you have in this life is to respond to that and to go to Jesus and to fall down before him and to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, provide for me. Lord, protect me. Provide forgiveness for my soul. You know, where do we go when we acknowledge we're not deserving? We go to the only one who says, whoever comes to me. By the way, there's nobody else in this fallen world that will do this. Nobody. I I bet you, I will bet you that you cannot find this person who will show absolute acceptance and generosity and provision and protection for whoever, the most undeserving, that comes to them. But Jesus will. Jesus will. Go to Jesus. Go to him and say, I need you to be my redeemer. Can I glean in the fields of your grace? I think there's also a picture there that what Ruth is doing is she's positioning herself. I want to say this this morning. Anybody who feels their need, anybody that feels the emptiness of their sin and their life and that they have nothing with which to stand before the Lord and that they'll they'll perish if they don't have food, anyone that feels that, you know what they do? They go where they'll hear this. And they position themselves in God's field, in his church. And they go and they worship him. And they sit under the ministry of the word. And they hear him saying, my son and my daughter, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live. Go through my fields, glean. Don't just take what falls by the wayside. Take all of Christ. Take all of Christ. Take from the sheaves. Take an abundance back with you. Take everything that's in Jesus. Take it all. That's the gospel. That's the largeness. Jesus has said, I have given my flesh for the life of the world. Take, eat, live, have bounty, have protection, have blessing. And all you have to do, 
All you have to do is ask. Isn't that beautiful? While Ruth does go out and she does personally glean and she does labor in the fields, all she had to do was ask. Isn't that marvelous? God holds out the promise of provision and protection and mercy and grace, and all you have to do is ask. Um, I want to close with this thought. When we have come to Jesus, and so many of you have, when we have come to Jesus and we've found the kinsman redeemer and we've found the fields of God's grace and we know where to get bread without money and without price and we know where to get wine without money and without price. When we we hear that call in Isaiah, come, eat, drink, buy wine, buy milk, without money and without price, eat, let your soul live and we find the fields of God's grace, the fields of Jesus. And, we, and we've come to him and we've, we've been the objects of his mercy and his kindness to unworthy sinners like us. The thing he begins to do then is to work his character and his image in us. And he begins to turn his daughters into women like Ruth. And he begins to turn his sons into men like Boaz. And he sanctifies us that the image of Christ might be reflected in us. That's how Boaz can be such a large type of Christ. The image of Christ is reflected in him, and it begins to become evident to those that look at us. They begin to say, there's something different about her. There's something different about him. Um, I hope that as you process these things and listen to these things, you'll uh, you'll sift these things through uh, the grid of, of your own self-examination. Have I come to the kinsman redeemer? Have I seen my own hopelessness? Have I cried out in selflessness? Do I position myself in the place where I can benefit from his grace and mercy under the ministry of his word at the sacrament? Do I go out to the fields of Christ to glean? And then is he making me into the man or into the woman that he wants me to be? That's, that's the question he leaves us with this morning. Jesus has done everything. His body has been broken. The grain has been crushed under the wrath of God so that we may eat and live and have all the bounty we need and to become the people God wants us to be. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we acknowledge that we, like Ruth, are entirely undeserving and we acknowledge before you our hopelessness that unless you... Uh, Show us your goodness and your covenant mercy and your bounty and your provision and your protection in Christ that we would perish. We acknowledge that we don't have a claim or a right on it except as you have accomplished your promises in Jesus. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would indeed give us the bread from heaven to feed on this morning, that you would give us your flesh to feed on, that you would feed our souls with what we need most and We pray, our God, that you would prepare us as we come to the table. We also pray that as we come and as we listen and believe that you would turn us into the kind of men and women that you want us to be in Christ. And our God, we thank you and praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.